Well, it's not every Sunday that you get to hear the word whoredom three times in our scripture readings, is it? And just one verse, actually. Parents, you're welcome for helping with the lunch conversation after the service. What is it that makes today so special that we get to hear this? Well, this morning we're beginning a series in a group of books in the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. There are 12 of these the most famous of which are Hosea and Jonah. Hosea, because he marries an unfaithful wife and repeatedly pursues her after her unfaithfulness. Jonah, because he's swallowed by a fish, lives in its belly for three days and is vomited up alive in the place that God originally told him to go. It's really hard to beat these plot lines for the other minor prophets. Now, for the most part, the minor prophets are thought to be filled solely with judgment. So a lot of us don't spend much time in them. I was on a jog the end of this past week, and at the back of the neighborhood we're in, there are yard signs with verses put put, placed on them. And uh, two out of three of them, I think, have verses from the minor prophets, which are all threatening judgment, which was just an odd thing while I was on a jog on a beautiful day, but that's what it was. It's true that these books do have a lot about judgment. Hosea, where we're going to spend our time this morning, is preaching to the nation of Israel because if they do not turn around and do something different from what they've been doing, it's going to mean literal disaster for them. The idea of judgment in our culture is considered to be almost entirely a bad thing an outdated mode of dealing with things. But, you know, our our opinion on this doesn't alter reality. Certain ways of living still have negative consequences, even if this feels like an outmoded way. And I wonder, is it really a bad thing to warn people about judgment when judgment is a genuine possibility when you walk certain paths? Now, another way of looking at the minor prophets is this. In the midst of their warnings, these books provide the questions for which the arrival of Jesus becomes the answer. Who will rescue us as human beings from our relentless commitment to self-destructive living? Haven't we all been in this place where it seemed like um, we couldn't make a right decision if we wanted to? where it seemed like we were addicted to living in ways that were not good for us. Left to our devices, we often commit a kind of self-sabotage against ourselves, our marriages, our families, our communities. Another question, is there a way that we, in our sin and failure, can be loved? Is there a way that we can actually change and become different? These are the kinds of questions the minor prophets ask, but they not only ask the questions, they also stoke the flames of hope that God will provide an answer. So there are many people in our modern culture that love the New Testament, Jesus, but they hate the Old Testament that predicts this Jesus and provides the questions that this Jesus comes to answer. We can't divide things up this easily. Now, one last thing before we jump into Hosea. 
the reason that they're called the minor prophets is simply because of the length of their works. So compared to the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, Uh, These are often called the big three of the prophets. The minor prophets are are smaller in stature. But actually, before translations came about from the original language of the Hebrew, the minor prophets were all viewed as one book called the Book of the Twelve. And I think this is the best way to think about them because they are all dealing with the same issue. God's relationship to his people and his people's habitual wandering from this relationship. This is why they were seen as one book, and I think we should see them as one book, because they're all dealing with this reality. God's relationship to his people, his steadfast commitment to his people, and yet his people's habitual wandering from this relationship. So the minor prophets are really one book, the book of the twelve. And Hosea intentionally introduces the book of the Twelve as a way of providing an image of God's relationship to his people. And so this image that Hosea provides is like the header for this big book, this multi-volume book. In other words, Hosea is saying, this is what God's relationship to his people is like through history. A marriage. So the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at the way that Hosea's life mirrors God's relationship to his people. The way that Hosea's life mirrors God's relationship to his people. So first, relationship with God is through marriage. Relationship with God is through marriage. And I hope you're listening carefully because I want to explain what I mean here. In the ancient world, when you were married, you made a covenant commitment. I think it's still the same today, but we don't like to use this language so much. Covenant is a pretty outdated word in our day. It's used by some theologians, but it's not used often in everyday talk unless you're Presbyterian. Uh, I think they use this word a lot. I think it's a great word, but a lot of us have lost the usage of it. It's an essential word to what it means to be human. A covenant is simply a committed relationship between people that comes with expectations and responsibilities. This is it. It's a relationship between people that comes with expectations and responsibilities. So in the ancient world, kings of different nations would enter into a covenant relationship with one another. And there was a covenant that had to be sealed in the way that a treaty today has to be signed. But this was much more serious. The way a covenant was sealed usually involved shedding of blood, typically an animal. And this communicated in a way, when you shed blood of a living thing, I am committing myself to this covenant to the point of laying down my life. So if you were here last week, Bishop Steve referred us to Genesis chapter 12, where you have this image, uh, well, this this scene where God made a promise to Abraham. And he told him to divide up these animals And in an ancient world, in a covenant, people would travel in between these animals as a way of saying, these animals symbolically represent what's going to happen to me if I break this covenant. It will mean my life. But in that scene, of course, it's God who goes in between those animals. And God is committing himself to his promises to Abraham that he'll fulfill those promises to the extent of his own life. Now, 
I actually think that the reason the idea of covenant is less popular today is because relationships on the whole are looser. Outside of marriage and parenthood, and even these are within limits, there are few places where we make long-term commitments with expectations and responsibilities. And on the whole, people are struggling with loneliness and aimlessness in our culture because we're less tethered to each other through these kinds of strong commitments. Now, marriage is this kind of lifelong covenant commitment of being willing to lay down your life. This is how the Bible views marriage. And the story of Hosea is saying that this is the type of relationship God has with his people. God has committed himself to this relationship to the point of guaranteeing he will lay down his life for it. Now, this isn't to say that God expects nothing of his bride, of his covenant partner. All true love longs to be reciprocated, expressed in return, and God is the same way. God committed himself to the heavy lifting in the relationship. But God's people in the Old Testament were circumcised as a symbol that they belonged to him. So look, this happens in Genesis chapters 15 and 17. Notice the order of this. In Genesis 15, God commits himself to Abraham. I'm going to fulfill my promises to you, even if I have to lay down my life. But what happens in Genesis 17? God says to Abraham, you and your family circumcise yourselves. And this is going to be a symbol that you belong to me and you will follow me. You see, God does commit himself to the heavy lifting in the relationship, but it's not as if God expects nothing of the covenant partner in return. He expects loyalty, his commitment. Now, Christians are baptized into the blood of Christ as a matching of this circumcision symbol, as a way of saying the same thing. Christ has committed himself to us death and resurrection. He's loved us, and in baptism, we commit ourselves to Christ in return. So this is the first way Hosea's life mirrors God's relationship to us. Relationship with God is a covenant marriage. God joins himself to us. He commits to laying down his life for us, and we respond in love and loyalty by following him. Now, the second way Hosea's life mirrors God's relationship to us is this. Sin is adultery. Sin is adultery. God commits himself in loving devotion, but humanity humanity shuns God's love. So, in Hosea chapter 1 verse 2 that Leah read to us, the repeated use of the word whoredom. You didn't know it, but the English actually lightens the force. You were getting a little bit of a break. The Hebrew has the root of the word four times, but the English only uses three. God is saying to Hosea that Israel has abandoned his love, shunned his love. How has this happened? Well, there are at least three common areas, well, a couple of areas in, uh, of rebellion in Hosea's story. And this happens throughout the book of the Twelve. We'll we'll look at more of them. This morning we're going to look at two. So first, their worship is mechanical and self-serving. 
Their worship is mechanical and self-serving. Their worship means nothing to them outside of what they can gain from it. To love God purely is to behold him in worship, to serve him in worship. But like a lover who gives attention only out of duty. Can you imagine this? Like a lover who gives attention to a spouse only out of duty, the Israelites' worship has become merely routine. There's no love for God. There's no adoration for his kindness. There's no gratitude for his care. God responds to them in one place like this. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Do you, do you hear how this sounds like an offended lover? I desire steadfast love from you. Sacrifice. I desire that you know me rather than you simply lay down some burnt offerings. Israel goes through the motions, but their heart is left untouched, like a lover who kisses but withdraws affection at the same time. You feel, as you read Hosea, that God is a flustered and jealous husband. I know my people, he says, but they do not know me. There's heartbreak in this. The truth is that all of us are perpetually vulnerable to making our worship more about us than it is about God. To making our worship a place where we feel comfortable and affirmed. Using it to make ourselves feel better, but avoiding the real point. Worship is about our service to God as a response to His love. This is the first sin. Their worship is mechanical and it is self-serving. But second... They've turned to other lovers. Instead of giving their best energies to God, they give their energies to false gods, their attention. Hosea chapter 2 verse 8 says this, She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Uh, Baal was the cultural god who surrounded Israel, and Israel was often pressured to worship simply to blend in with the nations says, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. Isn't this the saddest thing to hear from a husband to a bride? She forgot me. Much of this sounds strange to us because we don't have official idol temples in the way that Israel did. But here is the issue with idols. Idols always shape us into their image. We become what we eat, and we also become what we worship. And the way that you determine what you worship is by where you spend your greatest energies, your greatest time, and your greatest amount of money. You can claim to be a secular person who worships nothing, or to have been a Christian much of your life, but reality is always reflected in how you express your devotion with time, and money. There are other issues of sin that we're going to get to, but this is enough to show that from God's point of view, sin is adultery. It is a rejection of love. And Israel has rejected God by no longer worshiping Him with a heart of love, paying Him attention with 
a heart full of adoration. They've turned to other lovers instead. Now here's what I find fascinating about this. In our culture, when we or anyone else wants to complain about God, even if it's only in our heads, listen, Christians do this too. There are things in which we wish God would do a better job, so to speak. When we think this way, we tend to think of God as this all-powerful autocrat who could do more if he really wanted to. But when God describes his own relationship to humanity, he doesn't describe it in the terms of one who is all-powerful and who could do more. He describes it in the terms of a husband whose wife has left him. A father whose children are like strangers in his own house and are fast destroying themselves. These intimate relationships of, of betrayal are the only possible comparison for what God experiences in his relationship to us, to humanity. He is betrayed. His love has not been returned. It's been abandoned. Now what does God do about this? Hosea's life mirrors our relationship to God, and that first relationship to God is through marriage. It's a covenant commitment. Second, sin is adultery. It is a rejection of God's love. And third, God pursues us with justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. So where do God's qualities of being all-knowing and all-powerful come into play in this picture? We want God to have instant solutions to our problems, but no instant solution suffices in this case. Should God tamely accept our rebellion of him, against Him? Would that be genuine love if God just accepted our rebellion? That would, be, would no more be love than strong-arm tactics if God were to cower us into some kind of conformity. With relationships as subtle and sensitive as marriage, there are no shortcuts to mending them when they go wrong, not even for God. The life of Hosea is meant to reveal to us the character of God. God is not the distant magician of our childhood imagining. God is one who works within the very limits and freedoms that can make or break a marriage, a family, a community, or a person. But what does this mean? What does God do? I find that we... Should I dance? I'm not sure. We often try to put God in a box of our preference on these sides, justice and mercy. He's either loving and compassionate or he's judgmental, an ogre of some sort. But God does not fit in these boxes. He is whole and complete. His judgment after continual rebellion, means that God gives humans the dignity of making meaningful choices in the world and that our choices have consequences, even in the economy of God. This is what judgment means, that our choices do have real consequences. But at the same time, God's compassion is persistent and He longs that we would return to the arms of His love. 
Did you hear in the story of the prodigal son? It says the father saw him when he was a long way off and he already had his arms open. At the start of Hosea, we hear that judgment is coming for Israel because they've abandoned God's love. So the names of Hosea's children bear out this reality. Jezreel was a place of violent bloodshed. Israel was destroying brothers against brothers and killing a whole family. And God is saying, there's going to be consequences because of this. There will be judgment. No mercy, Hosea's first daughter. This name is a stark warning that they had gone too far. They had continually rebelled against God, thinking that their mechanical worship would somehow appease God and they wouldn't have to worry about consequences for their behavior. The last son's name, not my people. It becomes this tragic title for the life that Israel had chose. They no longer wanted to be a bride to God. And so God allowed that to come to be. But even at this point, not everything is lost. You see, in verse 10 of Hosea chapter 1, we heard that the people of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. You see, this is how quickly God's judgment can turn to mercy. In one passage, we hear that God's judgment is going to come. And at the same time, there's hope for redemption. So in verse 10, we hear that the people of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. This is an echo of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, the passage that we've talked about, that through Abraham, he would bless all people. This is a promise on which God staked his own life. God follows through. Christ is the faithful and true one who gives himself for the sins of Israel and the sins of the world. He dies to make a pure bride for God. Jesus provides the answer to the question that we presented at the beginning. Can we be loved? Yes, we can with an everlasting love. But there's also an answer to another. Can we change? And the answer, again, is a resounding yes. Through his love, we're received, but we are not left the same. Hosea's life mirrors our relationship to God in that our relationship to God is through marriage. Our sin is adultery. It is a form of unfaithfulness in which we reject God's love. But God pursues us with justice and mercy. He forms us into the faithful bride He has created us to be by showing that that life of unfaithfulness will not satisfy us. It will not give us joy. And so He allows His judgment to enter our lives so that we might turn back to the arms of love. This is the picture in the prodigal son. What happens when He wastes the Father's inheritance on foolish living? He comes into a life of depravity. And finally, He says... I can receive a better life at my father's house. And he turns. There are two questions I want to ask as we close. Do you worship who died and rose to redeem you from your sin? See, this is the first of Israel's great sins. Their worship was mechanical and self-serving. Their loyalty 
merely to God, but to themselves. Who is your loyalty toward? Is it toward Jesus Christ? No matter what that means about following Jesus. Do you worship Him? Do you behold Him? Is your worship of Him more about Him than it is about you? And second, are you growing as a faithful bride to God? Are you wandering from His love? Christ died to redeem you from your sin, to say that you can be loved in spite of who you are, in spite of all the struggles and sins. But He died also and rose from the dead to make you into a faithful bride to God. Now, if you are wandering from God's love, please hear this. You will experience God's justice. His justice will enter into your life. This warning that comes from Scripture from God is a warning of love. Because you don't have to experience His justice in that way. You can turn to Christ, you can repent, and you can receive His love again. So if you're wandering, if your energies are consumed with other love, will you repent of those? And will you turn to Christ? This is the beautiful story of Hosea. That his mirrors our relationship to God in that God took on an unfaithful bride. And he redeemed her. And he is making her more and more beautiful. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.